Hey guys, welcome back to Waking Cosmos, a philosophy podcast hosted by me, Adrian Nelson, which explores the nature of consciousness and its place in the universe. I wanted to start today by welcoming some of our new listeners. It's really heartening that more people are finding the podcast and enjoying it, and I'm very grateful for some of the encouraging feedback. It's nice when people appreciate what you're doing, so thank you. I have a very interesting guest today, the psychologist Roger Nelson from the Global Consciousness Project, who is very much another hero of mine, so I'm very lucky to get to talk with him. But before we uh, jump into that conversation, I thought I would just take a moment here uh, at the beginning to kind of re-emphasize what I'm trying to do here with Waking Cosmos, because whether or not you've just joined us or you've been listening for a while, I think it's worth reiterating what my focus is with this project. This is, as I said at the beginning, a podcast about the philosophical mystery of consciousness. And, you know, this is a subject which can take us in a lot of different directions. But really the starting point for me in this is just this extraordinary fact that the universe, reality, supports the existence of consciousness. To me, this is a far from arbitrary fact about the universe, that there is latent in the universe this potential for inner subjectivity and a dimension of value and meaning and significance that consciousness provides. So for me, the question of consciousness naturally extends into the nature of reality itself and the basic character of the universe on some level. And I think to that end, the truth about consciousness could be very surprising. So as much as possible, I think we should try to keep an open mind about alternative and even controversial theories about consciousness and what may be our true situation in reality as conscious beings. So that's really what I'm trying to do with this podcast. So with that said, welcome. Uh, my guest today, as I mentioned, is the psychologist Roger Nelson. He is the director of the long-running Global Consciousness Project, and he has devoted his career to exploring the controversial issue of mind-matter interaction and the possibility that our thoughts and intentions may actually extend in some manner beyond our brains and beyond our bodies and even produce some measurable trace in the world around us. So today we'll be looking at real scientific experiments conducted by Roger and his colleagues, which seem to show that consciousness, rather than an illusion, may in fact be a fundamental organising principle capable of affecting the world around us. And if that's not enough, we'll also be looking at Roger's further experiments that hint to the existence of a kind of collective consciousness that we are potentially embedded within and participate with. And just to clarify, because some people have asked me this, Roger and I are not related to my knowledge. And the fact that we share the same middle initial and surname is just one of those weird coincidences. And for me, the jury is very much out on whether or not coincidences like this are meaningful in any deep way. The last thing to keep in mind just before we jump into today's conversation, Waking Cosmos, this podcast exists because of my subscribers on Patreon. Patreon is how I'm trying to build Waking Cosmos into something that I can do full time. So if you can, and you would like to, you can help support these open-minded philosophical conversations about consciousness and reality 
by subscribing to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. And my sincere thanks to the people out there who are already helping me to gradually reach my goal where I can do this full time, which is really my great hope with this project. So thank you. And that's patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. All right, thanks for sticking around through that. Without further delay, I give you Dr. Roger Nelson. Hi, Roger. Great to be speaking with you. How are you? Hi, Adrian. I'm very well. Thank you. Good. So you and I have spoken on on several occasions. I've uh, interviewed you for various videos and things, but this is the first time that you've been on the podcast. So uh, I'm looking forward to having more of a long form type conversation with you about your research, which I think is extremely interesting and could have all sorts of significant implications to our uh, broader questions about what consciousness is and how it interacts with the world. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing some time with me today. I think one or two of the interviews we've done together are among the best uh, representations of the work I've been doing. Oh, thank you. So I've just finished reading your new book, Connected, which describes the story of the Global Consciousness Project, of which you are the director. And for people who don't know, the Global Consciousness Project is a scientific exploration of mind-matter interaction at a global scale, and uh, even the possibility of a, a kind of collective consciousness. And really, this book that you've written is is one that I've been hoping that you'd write for a long time, because I think what you've been researching and, and what you've found should be of a great deal of interest to, to the larger discussion about consciousness and how it fits into nature. So I'm very glad that this book now exists for, for people who might want to understand your work in a deeper way. So uh, congratulations on, on publishing it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I enjoyed writing the book, uh, which I did over the course of, oh, maybe t 10 or 12 years. It's uh, gotten many rewrites, but I think eventually or ultimately I was able to put together a pretty coherent story of the fairly complicated project. So just to begin with, I think it's fairly clear that you don't necessarily subscribe to this more mainstream idea that consciousness is just a kind of illusion of the brain. Is it problems that you have with the philosophy of that view, namely materialism, uh, which causes you to reject that view of consciousness? Or is it more the psi experiments that you and your uh, colleagues have carried out, which has ultimately pushed you to, to thinking of consciousness as perhaps a fundamental part of reality? I think it's fair to say I'm a data-driven kind of person. I like um, research. I like having what amounts to a scientific perspective and from that point of view of science, factual material to deal with rather than philosophic. And it seems to me that there's very little question that the mind is not encapsulated or imprisoned inside your skull, but lives in the, in the real world, it has a real presence in the world. And some of the work in laboratory research, the field research, and certainly in this Global Consciousness Project really support the view that consciousness is extended. I think in addition to materialism being famously very bad or simply unequipped to explain consciousness, I think as well there's all sorts of reasons for why consciousness is a candidate for being a significant part of reality. 
not least that significance itself requires consciousness. And so perhaps that has a kind of ontological importance that consciousness gives meaning to the world in some way. Well, as I'm sure you know, there are some people that think uh, the, almost the other way around, that uh, the world is a kind of extrusion of consciousness, ultimately, that consciousness is fundamental. I'm not really a philosopher in that sense. It doesn't seem to me to matter very much to argue one of these points or another, because we're still, I guess, in the infancy of a, of a kind of scientific understanding it is true that the standard model in science, what people think of as the queen or king of sciences, physics, doesn't have any way of dealing with consciousness. And it's utterly clear from any other perspective that consciousness is there. We are in consciousness all the time. So it behooves the queen of sciences to pay attention and try to make space. So I know there are some physicists who do. There are even some people who say, well, yes, in uh, early models of quantum mechanics, there is a space for consciousness because of the so-called collapse of the wave function. But that's really not adequate. Consciousness is way bigger than just a kind of epiphenomenon or a mere observer effect. It's really, um, I think, necessary for us to accept that we live in a universe which is conscious and of which we are part and our consciousness arises out of that universe. So to get into your career and, and your research, primarily you've been looking at mind-matter interaction and this idea that consciousness or the mind could have some scientifically measurable impact on the world around us that we can actually test. And so your work on this really started before the Global Consciousness Project at PEAR, at the PEAR Lab in Princeton. So before we get into your more global scale experiments that you're probably best known for, let's start with the work at PEAR and those earlier experiments looking at random event generators and the uh, apparent influence that human minds seem to have on them. So Roger, maybe you could describe uh, a bit about what those initial experiments were like. I had been uh, teaching psychology at a small college in Vermont, and I heard about, quite by coincidence, a job at Princeton University in the engineering school where people were going to be studying lesser-known aspects of perception. And that intrigued me. I, I didn't know at the time how intriguing it would be, but that turned out to be uh, a laboratory set up by Bob, Bob John and uh, Brenda Dunn, to study, among other things, the possible interaction of human consciousness directly with physical systems. In the engineering school, no one should be surprised, we proceeded to build very high-quality, sensitive instruments to test that hypothesis, asking the question, can human consciousness, and specifically could intention on the part of a human being, change the behavior of a random number generator or a random source of various different kinds. So we built the highest quality random number generators possible in, in uh, consultation with the electrical engineering and computer science department and proceeded to do experiments over years and years with dozens and dozens of people asking that same fairly straightforward question. If I 
as a participant in an experiment. I'm sitting a meter or so away from a random number generator, which is producing a sequence of numbers. Can I change that sequence of numbers at all? And so the experiment we set up was, we called it an REG, random event generator experiment. It had three conditions. One was to try to change the numbers output by the random number generator to become a little higher than their average. The second condition was to change them so that the sequence of numbers would have a mean value lower than the average expected. And then we had a condition we called baseline, which where we ask people just leave that uh, machine alone, let it do what it does naturally. And over the years, we were able to demonstrate with high statistical significance that people can do that. People can change the behavior of a random event generator that is engineered to uh, high quality and protected from any normal kinds of influences. People, simply by intending it, can change a sequence of numbers to be a little higher or a little lower than expected. Could you perhaps say a little bit more about what a random event generator is in terms of like the source of its randomness and why it might be the sort of thing that could be influenced by a mental intention? A random number generator or random event generator requires some fundamentally random source, and that means something that the future output of which is utterly unpredictable. In the Paralab, we used electronic random number generators, and their fundamental random process is what's called quantum electron tunneling. And to explain that just very briefly, the device was designed in such a way that an electrical circuit forced electrons against a barrier in a switch within a diode or a transistor. And by a process called quantum tunneling, it turns out that there are some electrons that appear on the other side of the barrier. They're not supposed to be able to exist inside that barrier, but they overcome that and a very tiny current develops from the few electrons that tunnel through this barrier. We sample that tiny current and count as a one anything that's higher than the average and as a zero anything that's lower than the average. And this happens at very high speed. One can think of this as a kind of electronic coin flipper. It is happening so that at such speeds that we can collect thousands of ones and zeros each second. In the Paralab, we typically use trials comprising 200 bits or 200 of those ones and zeros in, uh, collected in a sequence and then summed so that we'd have a number which is like counting the number of heads if you flip 200 coins. So the expected value is about 100. The range is something like 70 to 130 with very rare um, occasions at those um, extreme ends of, this, of the tail. Most of the values are indeed rather close to the mean value or expected value of 100. Now, we used other kinds of random devices, but the main experiments, the ones we pursued year after year for something like close to three decades, used um, basically random event generators based on electron tunneling. I suppose the idea on some level is that mind is introducing order into the world. And uh, if that is correct, then 
a purely random system, which is essentially completely without order because it's random, it should be exactly the kind of thing that might be sensitive to this ordering effect of mind. And as you say, the experiments do seem to suggest that mind does uh, produce a kind of order in these what should be random systems. Yes, well, I have another perspective on that, which goes back to the quantum level process. What we're talking about when you have something like electron tunneling, which is tunneling, which is fundamentally unpredictable, is a future that's completely undetermined. That is to say, there is no knowledge whatever existing now of what the future will be for this sequence of um, binary digits. Not even the electrons themselves know whether they will penetrate or not. So this is a system with what you could think of as an indeterminate future, and that, in some sense, is a kind of is a system which is uh, fundamentally uh, unordered, but which is susceptible, or at least one can construe it as vulnerable to information. That is to say, it constitutes a kind of open space in which uh, information could have some effect. And in the case of random sequences, our thought is that the mind, a human intention, constitutes a very clear source of information. And this um, undetermined future for the random sequence constitutes a sink where such information might be absorbed, thus changing the future from what it might have been. It's a, a lot of um, hand-waving verbiage, but I, in my personal view, that has to be approximately what happens. So human consciousness is a persistent and powerful source of information, which it means ordering or structuring uh, possibility in the world. And these random sources that we use in experiments are, in principle, unable, uh, without some influence, they're unable to be anything but disordered. So we have an informative source, the human mind, an intention, and a disordered source. So yes, I think human consciousness can add structure and order. Some people say reduce the entropy of a fully entropic system. It's interesting that it's not simply, as you say, just order flowing out of our minds, but that it, it seems to also correspond to a mind's intention for a certain outcome, uh, which in the case of these experiments was to uh, push the output of the device in either one direction or the other. And so intention has a kind of currency in these effects, more than simply an, uh, an ordering influence. What do you think that, that might tell us? Yes, I think early on I said that uh, mind actually has a presence in the uh, in the world, and intention is an easy way to think about that presence. Even attention, even if we are just simply paying attention and don't even have an intention, nevertheless, that attention of the human consciousness is a, a focusing agency, I think. I might mention my favorite physical model derived from David Bohm, because it really touches on these questions quite precisely. Bohm has a, a model of the, of the way the world is that involves a, an implicate order, which is inaccessible to human consciousness, but which is capable of manifesting in the explicate world through what he called active information. 
And in a sense, the active information that Bohm was talking about is something that is extremely like what human consciousness or any consciousness might produce. It is active in the sense that it shapes and structures its world. And in the case of an experiment, like the random event generator experiments, we have a, a consciousness which is uh, capable of providing active information and a kind of sync where such information could in principle be used because it's got a indeterminate future state. So the thought I, I have is that Bohm's active information is capable of manifesting structure in a system like a random sequence where in an implicit way, structure is required. It has none, needs some, and that need allows the active information to manifest. That's fascinating. I've always found David Bohm's work extremely interesting, but I can't pretend to fully understand it. But to return to these experiments at Pair, the participants in these experiments weren't in any kind of physical contact with the random event generator. They were simply projecting their mind into it at a distance. Is that correct? Yes, the um, protocol was essentially to let people decide how they would interact with the machine. They, they knew what the task was, and that was to try to align the output of the random number generator with their intention, which would be high or low or baseline. But we didn't tell them how to do things. Instead, we asked afterward, how do, how, how do you do this? Uh, how do you interact? And quite frequently, people would say, I have to um, allow a state of coherence to come about, or I have to be in love with the machine in order to interact with it in such a way as to, uh, to have any kind of influence. They, they had no physical connection, whatever. Indeed, some of the experiments were done with people in the next room or 250 miles away or even global distances away from the machine. And those experiments, the, what we call remote REG experiments, were quite successful. They had effect sizes um, the same or slightly larger than uh, experiments with people in the same room. So it isn't a physical phenomenon. There is no explanation using things like electromagnetic waves or heat or vibrations that could possibly explain the remote REG results. I might add we actually went the next step further and made, made experiments where the person thought about the REG at a different time from the time it would be run. So they were not only distant but off time. And those experiments also were successful and had an effect size still slightly larger than the simple remote ones. I came to believe that it may be that because we're asking people to do something that is, you might say, impossible in normal conception, that the more impossible it was, the more they relaxed and just let it be. And that seemed to be a, a condition where good results could arise. So there were essentially three types of experiments. There was a an experimental condition in which participants would attempt to produce more high counts in the REG or more ones, uh, another experimental condition in which they would intend to produce low counts or more zeros, 
and then a baseline condition in which they wouldn't intend to influence the REG in any way at all. So the direction of each of these experiments was decided in advance, but you didn't necessarily instruct the participant about how to influence the REG. Yes, that is correct. We called that a tripolar protocol. And in, in a sense, you can see it as an experiment with built-in controls, two directions, so that if a bias were operating somehow, there wasn't any uh, physical way that both the high numbers and the low numbers deviating from what's expected could be produced. And then the third condition, the baseline, constituted a very normal or ordinary kind of control condition where the machine was supposed to be doing what it would do naturally without any kind of influential condition. Right, and as you just mentioned, you also did experiments where participants didn't necessarily need to be anywhere near the REG in order to have some influence on it. And um, as you mentioned, there were successful experiments which are carried out over hundreds of miles or even global distances from the REG that they were actually trying to influence. So how do you think about distance in relation to these experiments? Are these non-local effects, in your opinion, perhaps analogous to to quantum non-locality? Yes, I think there is a pretty reasonable description for using the terms of physics, referring to non-locality, both in space and time, for these kinds of effects. And in a sense, that leads to a description or a characterization of mind as itself being non-local. We have good reason to believe that no one should uh, continue to believe that the mind is just a little activity inside your head, inside your brain, but instead has much greater extent or presence in the world. So um, these non-local experiments where people are working their will, so to speak, on the REG, even though they're far away and even though it's tomorrow or yesterday, these experiments are pretty clear demonstrations that we do not have to have a localized interaction to explain the effect of human consciousness and intention on sensitive random systems. Relating to this, there is, of course, this question in quantum physics about observation that you mentioned earlier, that it does in some way involve the mind. And, of course, it is quite a controversial view, but there has been several physicists, as well as philosophers, uh, even recently, arguing that consciousness could play a role in quantum measurement or the, uh, the collapse of the quantum wave function. And apparently this is still not an interpretation that we can rule out. So, Roger, do you think that there is any connection here with these REG experiments? Could they be, in some sense, demonstrating the same effects from perhaps a different sort of angle, conceptually? Something like quantum co- collapse of the wave function is, is a, I think, reasonable philosophical model for talking about what happens with the REG experiments, but I'm not sure that it's uh, adequate. I, I, I think there's something more like a persistent and as yet unexplored interconnection of which uh, some people talk about entanglement. I'll get back to that in a moment. But it seems to me that the evidence from these experiments means that mind is intrinsically and forever connected with pretty much everything in the world, the whole environment, all other people and so forth. Now, the evidence is very new 
most people haven't thought about these kinds of questions, so we haven't a large corpus of, of um, scientific uh, information about it. But there's, I think, good reason to believe that it isn't just a little bit of influence that mind can have non-locally, but a lot. That, it, that is, we live in, a, in an interconnected world in such a way that everything that happens in my consciousness and yours becomes a part of that world. We, in a sense, create the world that we live in. It's very hard to think clearly about this kind of thing because it's kind of a, a whole set of nested dolls. We're having observers watching observers. I think probably if we pay better, closer attention to what yogis and long-term meditators say about the way the world is, we might have a better picture. I understand that the actual effect size of this apparent conscious influence is extremely small and uh, probably it will be entirely invisible to us without the use of statistics. So could you say something about why even a very small effect like this is still highly significant in terms of what it might tell us? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting thing to think about. Many times, uh, if you uh, talk to people about your experiments and uh, explain it well enough so they understand the effect size is extremely small, like one part in a thousand or one part in 10,000, they'll say, so what good is it? <laughs> What's the point? And um, my response to that is very um, straightforward. I think even though we won't be able to develop uh, devices anytime soon, whereby you can change your TV channels or open your garage door just by willing or thinking about it. The implications for what human consciousness is and what the world is like in which we uh, live, where consciousness it plays a role, the implications for that are, very, are profound. I mentioned before, and uh, it'll come up again, I, I think that the evidence shows that we are fundamentally connected to the world. And it is subtle. And most of what happens in our experience in mind and in and the physical world is pretty straightforward, explainable in ordinary uh, terms of ordinary physics. But there are probably almost everybody has experiences, sometimes hard to note because they're fleeting, where which are unexplainable without some understanding that mind participates in the de determination of what's happening in the world. We have strings of good luck, or we have amazing coincidences, too many and too profoundly um, unlikely to imagine they're anything but uh, directed by some kind of consciousness. So I think there's a very good reason to believe that even though this effect size is tiny, what people are learning about the effects of consciousness on physical systems and in connecting with other consciousnesses, that these findings are profoundly important. Right, and as you've said, the size of an effect is not the same as our confidence that an effect actually exists. So how conclusive do you think were the experiments at PEAR in terms of demonstrating a real mind-matter effect? How confident can we be that this effect is real? And anticipating a bit your answer that we do have a strong confidence that the effect is real, why do you think it is that this hasn't been more generally accepted by the scientific community at large? 
Right. Well, the the effect sizes are so small that the it requires years of um, careful experimentation, uh, and it has to be experimentation where all other possibilities are excluded, leaving only consciousness as the de determinant that pushes the needle a little away from zero. Those kinds of experiments pursued over years are really, really hard to um, replicate, partly because they're there isn't any money or any prestige in, in pursuing these kinds of things. The essence of what uh, we're showing is highly significant departures from expectation, and the odds against chance range from, depending on the particular experiment or set of experiments, range from, uh, you know, hundreds to one to billions to one. That's not just in the pair lab, but in, in many labs and in meta-analytic databases that combine results across laboratories. There are, of course, skeptical perspectives, and there are people who um, believe that there must be some mistake. I'm personally strongly persuaded by the evidence because it's been accumulated by a large number of very bright people working hard to make sure they're not kidding themselves or making mistakes that are just, you know, unacceptable. And over the many years, many different laboratories, the same small-scale, statistically significant result has been found time after time. Meta-analyses that combine these across laboratories and across years typically show very strong, very high probabilities against chance that this is not a real phenomenon. So there are skeptical views and skeptical analysts who find weaker results, but even the most skeptical of those uh, doing meta-analyses, when they do them correctly, find that there are actually uh, still strong results, no matter how many so-called outliers are removed and so forth. So just uh, to put it simply, I think the evidence is very strong that we have the effects of consciousness that, that we're looking for in the data. How did these REG experiments with people intending to influence the device directly with their mind, how did that evolve into the idea that these random systems could also be used in these more field-like experiments and potentially measure shifts in collective consciousness happening in groups of people? Interestingly, when I was considering the job in Princeton uh, while still in Vermont, I proposed a protocol that would amount to taking data continuously and then having a mechanism for marking an index that would identify the beginning of an experiment where somebody was trying to change the output of a random number generator and then marking it again when that uh, period of intention would end. And also all kinds of other uh, potential experiments would be then feasible. It took more than 10 years for that protocol and software for it to be developed. But we wanted to find out whether, for example, if we had two or random number generators running in a, an experimental room, one, the target of intention by what we call an operator, the participant in the experiment, what would happen to the data in the other machine, which the operator might not even know about? And you can imagine the idea was to try to find out if there might be a kind of spreading field effect. It turned out to be more 
complicated and more interesting than uh, our original thoughts, but that led to, in conjunction with making smaller and smaller random number generators, to the possibility of taking data in the field where uh, something interesting was going on uh, that would be the focus of attention for a group of people. So we eventually were able to uh, develop pocket-sized random number generators attached to computers so we could do field REG research, which we, of course, wound up calling field reg, field REG research. The idea was that if you have a, a group of people at a concert, for example, or in a cathedral, or doing a, a ritual for the full moon in the woods, that context would provide a kind of focus for coherence or resonance among the people in the group. And we made a prediction that if a group of people becomes resonant, that that group consciousness would provide a kind of structuring information that could be registered in the REG data sequence. So we proceeded to test that hypothesis in a variety of different venues. We also did what you might think of as control conditions where we did not expect any coherence among the people, like a shopping center or a train station or a street corner. And uh, in the former case, we found departures from expectation. In the latter case, baseline data sequences. So in other words, our hypothesis that there would be a structuring influence of a coherent group consciousness has been confirmed in a number of different uh, kinds of experimental venues. Just to, to summarize these field REG experiments, so essentially you were taking a, a portable REG out to events where you, you thought people are maybe having a more synchronized kind of consciousness or having similar emotions at the same time or focusing intently on the same thing. And as you said, different types of events seem to produce quite significant ordering effects in the REG, whereas others uh, didn't apparently result in any departures from randomness. So what in your mind were the main differences between these different uh, types of events? The kinds of events which produced changes in the data sequence were all what one could think of as coherence-inducing or resonance-conducing uh, events. Um, if people go to a concert with a terrific musical group, which everybody goes to because they love it, they all become synchronized by the music. It's a little like as if everybody were dancing. Everything that is going on is in tune with or synchronized by the music. And it seems somehow the random event generator is not immune to, to whatever it is that brings everybody together into a state of coherence. My pigeon hypothesis is that the group consciousness itself is uh, forms and is a kind of informationally coherent structure in the world. And the indeterminate sequence produced by the random number generator comes to participate as if it were another group member. And so it becomes a little more coherent as well. So perhaps one of these events takes place at a movie screening or a dramatic performance of some kind. You are, as the researcher, also there 
keeping a note of the time when things happened that you imagine might be significant in some way in a kind of collective sense. So maybe the climax of a theatrical performance or when the home team scores at a football match. And so later you would compare those notes at the times when something significant happened and look at the ROG's behaviour during those moments. Is that the way that things were done or was there more to it than that? Well, I can give you uh, like a blow-by-blow account of doing a field REG experiment. I went with a small group, including a Shoshone Northwestern American Indian shaman, to a natural monument called Devil's Tower. The shaman's personal mission was to do healing ceremonies for spaces, uh, sacred places, sacred to the American Indians, which had been, in a way, desecrated by unfeeling, unthinking visitors. So we walked around the base of this amazing monument, which is a kind of mountain comprised of the core of a volcano that erupted millions of years ago, and all the rest of the volcano has now gone away. So there's this remarkable column. So in any case, we walked together around that place until the shaman found what he called a power spot. We all gathered around him while he then performed a healing ceremony, which comprised of singing and drumming and smoking uh, certain herbs and engaging us all in a kind of natural ritual behavior. So in other words, we were wrapped and attentive to what was going on for uh, what it turned out to be about 20 minutes. On the continuous sequence of data, I marked the beginning of the ceremony and the end, and later uh, showed him the resulting curve, which was a highly deviant, almost straight line uh, departure from what's expected for a random sequence like that. And he said, he, I had tried to explain what I was doing with this little gadget <laughs> before, and he kindly nodded. Now he said, uh, Ah, at last I understand what you mean. <laughs> so that that's a, a particular example. But in general, it does require marking the beginning and the ending of a an event that one predicts will change the nature of the data, make it more structured, and uh, then doing a subsequent analysis. And these experiments are all done with no feedback, you know, no d- display of data as it's progressively accumulated. It's an experiment that doesn't have any intention. And so there's nobody trying to change it. It's just that we have set up an experiment where what we think of as kind of coherent attention to something in the environment will create changes in the data sequence, structuring it and making it deviant from what's expected from true random behavior. I find it interesting, as you mentioned in your book, that sports events don't typically produce very large effects. And I wonder what you think about that. Is it maybe because this more competitive mental state is itself less coherent in a way? Or perhaps it's because it's more that there's an intention to win, but it's maybe cancelled out by the other team's intention or the other supporters of the team. Like, What is your interpretation of why sports events in particular typically don't tend to produce very significant effects? I think the the nature of those kinds of events which reliably 
have an effect. It has a fundamental connecting quality. Things like compassion and love and and deep engagement that is synchronized tend to be the sort of things we see producing effects. Now, sporting events are are very exciting and they uh, raise high emotions, but there is indeed, as you suggest, there's a competitive quality to them and therefore conflicting intentions and hopes and dreams. And it seems likely that the reason that sporting events don't reliably show departures in our data, which would reflect the high intensity of the emotion and the connection that people have to the sporting event, is because that the styles of connection really are not coherent. They're focused in opposite directions. The competing uh, intentions and aspirations will cancel each other in terms of an effect on the REG trace. It's an unsettled question, ultimately. I think if we, if we had a lot more people involved and a lot more time and money, it would be possible to pull apart the effects more effectively in um, sporting events. For example, if we were able to look at the uh, details and maybe have ratings of what's going on during the time that we're independent of the data trace, we would find that things like a really surprising goal that just took the breath out of everyone and synchronized everyone's attention for a moment that such a thing might more reliably produce effects in our data. Earlier we touched on this finding that distance doesn't seem to to matter in these experiments very much. So what is the significance of taking an REG to the place where an event is happening? And if it's true that these effects are non-local in essence, if the REG doesn't actually need to be present at the event, how does it know what it's supposed to be responding to? Oh, wow. That's a really nice question. I personally have a notion, and I share it with others, that these experiments in uh, subtle effects of consciousness require a kind of uh, intention contract where the experimenter and the experimental system and all the participants and so forth enter into a kind of agreement that we have a question we'd like an answer to and we formulate it the best way we can and do the kind of experiment and data collection and analysis that we think uh, would be most helpful. And all of that uh, is required. So among other things, if we have a field REG experiment, we have to, in a sense, let the field REG, this device, know what it's supposed to be. (laughs) It's supposed to be a monitor for an event that is this uh, soccer match or this cathedral uh, ceremony. So in other words, we, you might say we assign a job or we assign a role to the random number generator. I know that sounds pretty arcane and pretty, mm, how shall I say, it's not entirely superstitious, but it moves a little bit in that direction. I think we have to maybe animate the world we live in a little bit to do these kinds of experiments. So this gets perilously close to an experimenter effect. But what I think is the case is that um, doing these kinds of experiments really involves something like four characteristic inputs. One of them is the experimenter's input. What am I trying to do as an experimenter? What do I want to learn? What is the participants or the nominal source? It might be the group in a field REG experiment. Their contribution is important. 
One is the nature of the question we ask, and that's what I'm really talking about when I talk about the intention contract. If we didn't ask the question, there'd be no way for the field REG to tell us anything. So we have to accept that there is this kind of engagement of the device in the process. And then I think that the fourth component that might be needed, have to be considered in order to explain what we're doing and the results we get, is uh, the cosmos or the universe kind of laughing at us, what I call the coyote, southwestern Indian name for the joker or trickster. It's another way of saying, don't get lost in your hubris. There is just too much complexity in the world to be very certain that what you're doing is telling you what the truth about the situation. Another way to put that is that we have to keep asking the same questions and variations on the questions in order to get closer and closer to a useful answer. To follow on from the field REG studies, which uh, do seem to have been successful, you started to think about the possibility of global experiments of this nature. So how did it all come about? How did the Global Consciousness Project get started? I read that there were some initial pilot studies which produced positive results or promising results. Yes, the field REG experiments raised as many questions as they answered. One among those was what would happen if we had two or three or four devices and brought them to a scene? And what would happen if we didn't bring them to the scene, but made an experiment where we said, as we had done with the remote REG experiments, there is a device somewhere, and we would like a a report by this device on what's happening elsewhere. So that led to thinking about creating a, a kind of a network or a substantial installation of random number generators that could be used to monitor larger scale events, or ultimately global events. And I was at Esalen on the West Coast several times for meetings that were that had a different purpose from this, but I was actually monitoring using the field reg to look at the quality of these meetings. And I was finding that, sure enough, when uh, something I had marked and notated as a kind of significant and engaging period of time, uh, a talk by somebody or whatever, uh, I would get departures from expectations. And while at one of those meetings, I met people who were otherwise completely independent of my reasons for being there. These people were in the course of traveling around to promote a meeting they called Gaia Mind Meditation. They wanted to, to organize as many people in the world as possible to do a meditation on world peace at noon on a certain day in it was January 23rd, 1997. It was all set, widely publicized, and probably uh, something on the order of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people uh, participated. I asked all of friends and colleagues, please take data during this period of time of this, in a sense, global meditation. Send it to me, and I'll put it all together and see what we get. And that happened. I had, I think, 14 data lines from a variety of different random number generators. But uh, by normalizing everything, I was able to combine those. And the departure during the moment, this short period of time, was striking compared with time preceding that or time after that. We had data covering 
I guess, a few hours around the moment. It was pretty um, impressive. Later that same year, Princess Diana was killed in a crash. And we didn't have a, any random number generators running at the time. But we knew there would be a giant funeral ceremony, and there was. I asked, again, all my colleagues uh, using random number generators to please record data during that day, send it to me. And again, I put the data together and found a one in a hundred kind of odds against chance that we would have such a strong deviation. And that um, prototypes like this led to thinking, it makes sense to set up a permanent network because there are always things happening in the world. And we could test this kind of general notion that random event generators network together can somehow respond to major events in the world affecting humans and focusing their attention very strongly and clearly. So after having established the Global Consciousness Project, you now have REGs on many, if not all, of the continents of the world. And so now you're looking at global events and could they affect this network of REGs all around the planet? Could you say a bit more about what kinds of global events you hypothesize might affect this network and cause it to become more ordered or structured? Right. So the outcome of our pilot experiments or prototypes uh, led us to make a permanent network which does indeed have one or more random number generators on every continent, with the exception of Antarctica. We don't have any there. And uh, we set up the network to produce data constantly so that there would be 24 hours, seven days a week over periods of months and years that we had a kind of a swath of random data sequences up to about 60 or 70 independent devices all producing a continuous sequence every second, a new trial, and sending it to a server in, in Princeton. So this allowed us to look at any kind of event and compare, in a sense, the history of events against the history of random data that we were collecting. So we began with the very first event was a tragic attack, terrorist attack in Africa on two American embassies, which killed a large number of people and shocked the world because embassies are supposed to be safe places uh, so that there can be communication. We also began looking at things like crashes of airplanes that killed large numbers of people and, and surprised and shocked the world. We looked at the terrorist attacks in New York and uh, Washington, D.C. in 2001, September 11. But we also knew from the beginning we wanted to look at major events that also brought people together in a peaceful and maybe even joyful fashion. Things like religious gatherings or New Year's. Uh, New Year's, the one that the Western world celebrates, December 31st, passing into January 1st is something that is celebrated all over the world. And so we said, we'll look at that every year. And we have done so. Um, lots of other kinds of events, but basically anything that would engage really large numbers of people in a kind of communal or mass consciousness attention that was focused on the same thing, synchronized, you might say, by the events in the world. Sometimes also 
events that were created or are created by us. New Year's is, a, is something that we create rather than something we're stimulated by. Mass meditations, which are organized more and more frequently over the years, are something we have looked at a lot. So a variety of different kinds of events, both positive and negative in emotional valence, large and small in size, both inner-directed and outer-directed with regard to where the source of stimulation is. I suppose it's our technology, in a way, which uh, allows us to all follow the same events at the same time. Many of us all around the world will hear about a very significant event and it'll bring us into a similar state of mind or a similar focus of attention. And really, until now, at this time in our history, this has never really been possible before. Well, yes. In fact, this uh, global consciousness project was only possible at the time when the, as you say, the development of technology allowed people to be kind of global in their attention to major events. Our Technology, in a way, is creating a kind of mass consciousness supported by an electronic matrix. And I think at the same time, uh, the Global Consciousness Project data suggests that in exactly a consonant fashion, there is a kind of interconnected consciousness framework that is ethereal, perhaps. It's unconscious. We don't actually directly perceive it all. Uh, We would not know about it without the kind of technology that we have implemented in the Global Consciousness Project. The 9-11 events have become somewhat emblematic of the uh, the Global Consciousness Project because really it's just the sort of event that you'd predict would capture the attention of many, many minds. And so if anything was going to cause an effect in this network, it would have been these terrorist attacks. And uh, as you say, apparently there was indeed a very large effect on that day in the REG network. So, um, Roger, maybe you could tell us a bit about what happened to your network of REGs when 9-11 took place. On uh, 9-11, I was uh, standing around in the kitchen listening to the radio and I heard about a little plane, what I thought was a little, you know, a pilot who lost control and crashed into the trade towers, but I very quickly learned from radio and television that it it was uh, way different from that. It was very immediately easy to see that this this was a global event of the sort that we were expecting might create a a large effect. So I set an event four hours and some minutes duration to represent this attack. And the analysis showed that the data did depart from expectation as predicted. It wasn't hugely powerful, but it was a 0.02 probability, two times in a hundred if you were to repeat such a horrific event. But because it was a horrific event, a number of my colleagues and I worked for days and weeks to analyze the data, not just on that day and not just during the formal event of four hours, but all around it. So what we learned gradually from these extra analyses was that the event wasn't just a few hours long. The departure from expectation that was strong and clear uh, lasted for almost three days rather than some a few hours, longer than other things we have seen or anything up to that time. 
And uh, we did different kinds of analysis that allowed us to pinpoint the time when data really started going strange relative to expectation. And we were able to see that there was a very strong departure beginning about four hours before the first plane hit. So this was another indication that there's something going on which we need to work hard to understand. In other words, why would their data begin to depart before the people in the world heard the news? We don't have a way of really explaining that, but there seemed to me to be two possibilities. One is that there were 50 or 100 people in the terrorist networks who knew exactly what was about to happen. And they would have been saying their last prayers, some of them, because they were going to die soon in crashes into the trade towers. My preferred explanation is that as human consciousness in the individual, there may be something like premonitions of uh, the future that could affect the activity or coalescence of a global consciousness as well as an individual consciousness. So it may be that even though we personally, individually couldn't know about it, that a global consciousness could um, have a kind of precursor knowledge that something pretty terrific was about to happen. I think I read somewhere, I think maybe it was in one of Dean Radin's books, that on one measure, 9-11 produced the single largest effect in the network of any day that year. So it seems to have produced a correspondingly large effect to the significance of the event itself in a psychological sense, which is very interesting. Yes, especially if you look at the extra analysis, uh, which extend the understanding we get from the formal analysis, it is the largest effect size, so to speak, that we had seen up to that time. And honestly, I think with a few possible exceptions, the largest in the whole 20-year time we've been running the network. Is there any danger here that if you have a big data set like this with a practically endless number of possible analyses that you can do on it, that you can simply just keep running analyses on that data until you find something significant. How do you guard against this possible problem of multiple analyses, as it's sometimes called? Right. Well, the Global Consciousness Project has had from the beginning an a priori protocol. By that, I mean that we specify before the data are examined or pulled out of the archive, we specify exactly what uh, the analysis will be. We specify exactly the time that the event begins and exactly the time it ends. And then we apply a particular analysis that itself is well-defined. And in fact, almost all of the analyses in 500 formal events use just one very simple measure which we call network variance. What that amounts to is a calculation of the variance across the whole network of 60, say, random number generators in one second, and then the next second and the next after that. And what that measure turns out to represent or actually be in a large part is a measure of correlation between these devices, which are designed to be and are independent, and which are also separated by thousands of kilometers on average. So basically what we're looking at is a correlation that develops between devices where there absolutely should not be any correlation. It's a very tiny 
deviation from what's expected, zero correlation, but it's enough to accumulate to trillion to one odds against chance over the uh, long formal series. So back to the basic uh, question, we don't do multiple analyses. We have never had any inclination to do that. We have a prediction registry or a hypothesis registry that shows for every event that we uh, look at exactly how anybody who wishes can duplicate the analysis that we do. Hmm. I understand that the results of some events do show some evidence of the effects being localized to REGs, which are uh, close to an area where an event is happening. So, for example, on 9-11, Uh, The REGs, which were apparently more affected in some ways, were also on the east coast of America, which is, of course, where the events took place. Do you think that this suggests that the effects are somewhat localized? And uh, if so, would that perhaps count against the non-local consciousness way of thinking about this? It's a very interesting question whether there is any localization of the effect, and it's not terribly easy to pull it apart. First of all, where is the event? That's not a question that people pay much attention to until you force it upon them. But an event like 9-11 nominally happened physically in New York City, but as is easy to see, everybody in around the world who got the news over television or radio or by phone calls from friends was paying attention and were part of what I think we should construe as a kind of global consciousness or a global attention to the event. In other words, the 9-11, although physically localized to New York and Washington, absolutely in terms of a consciousness space where it counts, was not localized in that way. I did also some analysis to look at the size of the effects on various instruments, and the individual devices in Brazil had the largest deviations during that uh, formal period of time. The East Coast of America had a large effect size. The West Coast, nearly null. And Europe, an effect size almost as large as the East Coast of U.S. And I'm not sure that there's any significant differences between those fairly localized calculations. I I should go on to mention that with regard to localization, there is a kind of formal and practical way of of asking the question, and that is about having to do with the separation of the REGs. Remember, the effect is a correlation between devices, and it turns out that correlation diminishes very little over global distances for large events. That calculation, that is the effect size, does diminish, I think significantly, when only uh, very small events, which probably do have only a local contingent of people in the world, are paying attention to it. That would be something like a local organized meditation or maybe the death of a person who's extremely important in Sweden but not anyplace else, something like that. And so what we can say is that there's a little indication that these global consciousness kinds of effects are not indefinitely non-local, but that they are certainly not localized in the classical sense. I'm assuming, Roger, that you don't believe that it's only humans that have consciousness, but that because whales or apes or other conscious animals don't have 
24-hour news networks and social media and uh, these other kinds of technologies which connect us in, in the human civilization, it's difficult to test what contribution these other conscious beings might be making to this collective interaction. So really the Global Consciousness Project is only looking at humans, but it's certainly not to say that other species, other conscious beings are not contributing to perhaps just noise in this data. Right. We ask a, a question that is, can be stated in the form, what happens when a, an event in the world engages very large numbers of human beings' attention? So while it's entirely possible that a global consciousness properly defined would have to include all kinds of sentient animals and probably the earth itself, even though it may be that other consciousness is involved, the only way we can define a kind of conscious global consciousness is in human terms. We have no way of testing what might happen if a large number of, let's say, antelope or whales were somehow engaged. Somebody proposed to me once to, a way of getting over that, and that would be to kill all the animals of a certain kind on an island somewhere and see if the uh, screech of despair would register, and I declined to consider that as a serious <laughs> kind of proposition. I could see you having difficulty getting that through an ethics board. I suppose so. <laughs> Speaking of animals, just to mention as an aside here, there has, I believe, been one study at least looking at REGs, uh, looking at baby chicks by a French researcher, René Pioc, which seemed to show that baby chicks could influence an REG uh, that was attached to a little robot that they'd been bonded to as if it was their mother. And this REG robot, which should have just been moving in a random way around an enclosure, spent much more time closer to the chick's cage than it should have done if it was just moving randomly. So I think the thought was by the researcher that it was the chick's desire for their mother to be close to them, which was what the caused the REG to spend much more time nearer to them uh, than if it had just been moving randomly. So animals are apparently putting intentions out there uh, which also seem capable of influencing REGs. Yes, it's, uh, that's a very interesting experiment. It actually inspired us to build one very similar experiment in the pear lab. But the closest we were able to get to baby chicks was 10-year-olds who would visit the lab and who had very great <laughs> success relative to the adults around trying to get this uh, device to come to them. But that, of course, was human attention, again, rather than animal attention. Another thought that I had while you were describing uh, René Pioc's experiment was that it's a sort of classic case where it is required that the random number generator understand what it's supposed to do. In other words, the intention contract that René Pioc made with the chicks, the random number generator, and himself as the experimenter, all was required in order for that experiment to work. Very elegant and a very interesting outcome. So as you mentioned earlier, another recurring event that you've looked at is New Year's celebrations. As you say, it seems likely that this moment at midnight, moving into a new year, everyone focusing on this moment, 
it seems to be a natural candidate for an experiment of the kind that you're doing. And I know that you've looked at this. So, Roger, do New Year's uh, tend to produce significant effects in your data? In a word, yes, New Year's does uh, bring us together in, in a way that it affects the random number generator network, the GCP network, in the way we predict. In particular, we actually do two different analyses. The one that's clearest is a measure of network uh, device variance. What we expect the device variance to do is an ordinary random walk with no deviations. And what we find is that on New Year's, when we, we combine across all the individual time zones, it produces a kind of V-shaped curve where the random walk starts about five, a few minutes before midnight. It starts declining. In other words, the variance starts decreasing. It reaches a minimum around midnight and then begins increasing again to return more or less to the normal random walk at about five minutes after midnight. What I'm describing is a kind of ideal form, uh, which we have seen a few times, but we see this, a similar general approximation to that form well enough that if we combine across years all of these V-shaped, semi-V-shaped curves, we get a very strong confirmation of the general prediction that there will be a decrease in device variance around midnight and then a return to normal device variance. Pretty picture, actually. I think probably the most significant New Year's that we've had since the Global Consciousness Project has been going was the millennium. And, uh, you know, of course, it was significant to people for a number of extra reasons. So I wonder, was the millennium New Year's more significant statistically than others? The millennium New Year's was... It fit the pattern, but it wasn't more significant than the others, uh, than any other. I think probably the, the year following, if I recall correctly, is the one that I usually use for a, as a demonstration of what this uh, prediction that we make should look like if everything works exactly the way we imagine it might. It's a very sharp, clear uh, picture, whereas the Millennium New Year's was had that general form, but it was, I think the, the minimum value was reached half a minute before midnight rather than exactly at midnight, that sort of thing. Hmm. Do you think that the Global Consciousness Project is really providing evidence of a kind of global coherent consciousness, some kind of mind, or is it maybe not more scientifically conservative to simply say that consciousness as we know it introduces a kind of order into the world and that this is what is being measured like what is it that makes you think that this is more akin to a global mind of some description as opposed to simply the result of many individual minds resonating perhaps with each other but not necessarily creating a new kind of supervening consciousness on top of all of those minds well that's a very Good question. A very a nice one and not easy to answer. I personally do like the idea that was first presented to me when I was in college and read Teilhard de Chardin's books about the phenomenon of man, the future of man, in which he described evolution in a beautiful, poetic way, uh, all the way from particles of inanimate material to cells to 
animals to human beings, and he said, we think of ourselves as the pinnacle of evolution, but I, I believe there is another stage toward which we are evolving, and that would be to become a sheath of intelligence for the Earth, a kind of noosphere, as he called it. And uh, so I'm much affected by that idea. I actually wrote when I started the Global Consciousness Project that I, I thought there might possibly be some faint indications that there, that process of entering the next stage was beginning and that we might have a kind of embryonic noospheric consciousness. And I was wanted to see if there could be any evidence for it. So all that said, it's still entirely possible that the evidence that we have of um, reactions of random number generator network to coherent group or global scale consciousness, that that could be just a lot of individual, you might say, consciousness hits on our network from individual people. It doesn't seem as elegant or simple an explanation as a kind of inter penetrating, interacting, or interconnected consciousness, but it may be so. And I think there are two perfectly good models, one of which is that, the other one is, of which is a kind of true interconnected consciousness, which fits the idea of the noosphere. But there are other possibilities, too. In fact, some of my very smart colleagues say, well, to me, it seems this is nothing but an experimenter effect that uh, Roger Nelson or the people that know about this experiment are the source of any deviations that you find in this global network. Um, I think there are good reasons to believe that's uh, not a good interpretation, but that's uh, another set of questions. Right, so you mentioned this alternative explanation that it is an experimenter effect. So the Global Consciousness Project is, is still evidencing a psi effect but it's the expectation or the hope on the part of you and the other researchers of seeing an effect, which is actually what creates it. So the thought is, is that maybe it's an experimenter effect in a psychic sense. So how, how do you respond to that alternative experimenter effect explanation of the Global Consciousness Project, which some people have subscribed to? I think the best kind of evidence that it can be put together for considering how it works or why it happens is really, in fact, an accumulation of several different kinds of analyses and perspectives. Now, I can just kind of wave my hands about these, but I'll just mention a few. If I want to describe why I think there are better models than an experimenter effect, I start with the fact that I, as an experimenter, have a pretty weak effect demonstrated in all of the years at the pair lab. <laughs> but uh, that's not a necessarily uh, a good counter explanation. So what I actually do is look at um, a variety of different kinds of analyses. For example, the distance analysis that I described a few minutes ago is something that we didn't really intend or have a way of doing at the very beginning. And yet it has a coherent kind of structure. It produces a coherent result that would seem to be more constant with a global consciousness than with a, an individual experimenter effect. The effect size, turns out, in an analysis by Peter Bensell, is largest when people are awake, larger than when they're asleep. If you do a calculation where the correlations between devices is affected by people awake or asleep, 
they are bigger when people are awake. That's not a surprising thing, but it's not something that I knew about or thought about or could even imagine doing an analysis for until seven years after the project began. But probably the most interesting piece of data that seems to me to represent the model of global consciousness is that the shape of the data, if you do an analysis of the data that's like what's done for brain EEG data, the shape of the analysis for the event in the Global Consciousness Project, as if it were a response to a stimulus, has a very particular form over many, many cases where there is an effect. And that form is a kind of drop down and then a large peak followed by another drop down relative to the stable baseline. In other words, there's a kind of shape that the curve has. And when you look at brain EEG data, where a stimulus like a flash of light or a burst of sound is given to the human brain, the EEG trace has exactly that same kind of form, a large peak surrounded by peaks of um, uh, opposite sign. So in other words, the shape of what happens in response to the stimulus in both the brain and then the Global Consciousness Project data is so much alike that it constitutes a, a fairly strong pictorial argument that we're looking at the same kind of thing. I think whichever one of these interpretations is correct, I think, as you've pointed out as well, it doesn't really diminish from the fact that the mind is extending beyond the, the, the classical confines of the brain in some way that science doesn't currently account for. And that in and of itself is an enormous finding that we could uh, potentially learn a lot from and should really be a, maybe a part of our thinking if we're trying to understand what consciousness is. Let's assume for the moment that collective consciousness is a, a real phenomenon and that our minds have this deep interconnectedness, which your work seems to suggest. What do you think this means for us ethically or as a civilization? Certainly, it would seem to cement this idea that on a deep level, we share in some kind of identity. So what insights do you think that we should be taking from this? From the uh, beginning, I've imagined that we would be looking at something like an interconnected global consciousness. And as we've said, it's not a foregone conclusion and it's not something that we can claim to have proven beyond a doubt. But the, the fact that our abstract and distant random number generator network responds as if it could hear the thoughts and feelings of millions of people in either agony of terror or in the joy of celebration. It seems to me that the results of these experiments show that we humans are connected. There are other potential explanations, but it's definitely to me, watching this unfold over the years, seems the best explanation is that we are connected at levels that we don't understand and we can't actually directly access, but which nevertheless uh, support the idea that we can, we ought to, try uh, hard to understand this better and understand our own consciousness in such a way as to ultimately exploit this interconnection that may underlie everything we do. I think that the possibility is that if we accept the idea that we are connected, 
and begin to foster that among ourselves and across our cultural divides, that we will eventually move even rather immediately toward the idea that Teilhard de Chardin and others have expressed, that we are the stewards of the earth. It's not that we have dominion, as so many people seem to think, but we have the responsibility to take care of the only home we have. We can best do that if we're collaborating or operating as a kind of global, conscious, intentional unit. The best analogy I can imagine is the human brain itself. The human brain is comprised of billions of neurons, hundreds of billions, and they, as neurons, do what they do without having any consciousness that we can imagine. They don't know they are neurons or that they should connect to each other. They just do that. They do that job so well that the result is something like consciousness, intention, awareness. I think human beings have the potential of behaving as real human beings, as the best human beings possible, and ultimately, as a result, producing something equivalent to a kind of consciousness, awareness, and intention for the earth. Earlier, you raised the ideas of Teilhard de Chardin, the uh, philosopher, who I know has been a guiding influence in your work uh, while looking at mind-matter interaction. So I wondered if you could say a bit more about Teilhard's evolutionary view about consciousness and where he thought the evolution of consciousness might all be leading to. Well, Teilhard was a paleontologist as well as a Jesuit priest, and he was, um, in other words, an accomplished scientist and a philosopher and poet <laughs> and had a kind of religious conviction. And so one of the things that he was influenced by was the science. He saw that there was a progression from the Piltdown Man, which he helped to uh, discover and identify in China, of course, there had already been evolution long before that, but he understood as a scientist what evolution amounts to. He didn't find that uh, opposed to his religious understanding and convictions, but rather as a kind of enhanced understanding. His church superiors, on the other hand, were uh, aghast and forbid him to publish any of these ideas about evolution and the future of man. In fact, it was only through the agency of a housekeeper who had taken care of his you know, life needs for many, many years. She preserved the manuscripts and eventually was able to have, bring them to publication. But back to the question of evolution. Tehar's notion was that we can see the steps of evolution. We can see what hap has happened, and we should be able to see also that, that it's not a finished process, he thought. There's no sense in which this is finished, but there must be another stage. And he conceived that as uh, being what the spiritual aspect of his life taught him, that human beings ultimately had a kind of responsibility as sensate and intelligent beings to take care of the home that they had on Earth. Teilhard's views extended out into cosmology, in a way, um, and he talked about an omega point where in the distant future, perhaps after billions of years, all consciousness is eventually destined to coalesce into a kind of supermind involving 
perhaps all of the matter and energy in the universe on some level. Is that something that could be plausible to you? How far do you follow Teilhard in this kind of thinking? Well, it's an extremely interesting question how far ideas like Teilhard's might extend. He did consider that the whole cosmos eventually would become a unitary consciousness, which he called the Omega Point. Not only did Tehar think that, it was completely independently conceived by physicists, modern physicists, that the cosmos itself is consciousness and that it would eventually produce us necessarily in order, in some strange and circular sense, to reflect back through a kind of intelligent consciousness to the cosmos and the omega point. Tehar was a remarkable man, and I think he anticipated and prefigured some of the ideas that are the best modern physicists come up with about how to explain the universe. Most advanced physical thinking um, embodies, at least in some measure, the idea that consciousness is real and is a kind of fundamental in the universe. Roger, I'm really grateful to you for sharing so much time with me today. Before we say goodbye, where would be a good place to direct people to if they wanted to learn more about your work and the Global Consciousness Project? Well, the feeling is mutual. I really appreciate having a chance to talk with you and to the guests uh, of your podcast. The best large-scale access to what's going on in the Global Consciousness Project is a website. It's global-mind.org, and it has a pretty extensive menu that will help people find the things that they're most directly interested in. It's a huge website, and if you're looking for something, if you wish you knew something that you can't find, use the search facility, because that will lead to a, a lot of things that aren't even in the menu. So for English uh, speakers, there is a book called Connected, The Emergence of Global Consciousness, which is available at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. And uh, you can just put in Connected, Roger Nelson, and that will turn up the book. For people who speak German, there's another book called Der Weltgeist, and that's co-authored with Georg Kindle. That's uh, available on Amazon.de or in bookstores in Europe. Otherwise, it's possible to, if you have a tough question that you might find my meditations interesting or useful for, you can write to rdnelson at princeton.edu. I want to say that I really enjoyed your book, Connected. It was really exactly what I was hoping it would be. Very informative and beautifully written. And so if people do want to read it, I'll make sure that there's a link to that book in the description of this episode. Highly recommended, and there's no obligation for me to say that. It's just my personal opinion. <laughs> well, thank you very, very much, Adrian. I appreciate the recommendation and the opportunity to talk about these things. Well, thanks again, Roger. Really fascinating to talk with you, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. I would love it. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I'd love to hear your ideas about the subjects we explored today. 
which you can share in the comments section of this podcast on YouTube or by contacting me directly at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos, which is also the best place to give me any suggestions you might have about future guests or ways to improve what I'm trying to do here. Of course, subscribing on Patreon is the best way to support my work and help me keep creating this content for you. So if you choose to do that, thank you very much indeed. Alright, that is about it from me today. Until next time, I hope you have a beautiful day.